Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We heard recently that after 12 years, Councillor Terry Whitehead recently re-elected, now in a different ward though, Ward 8. Uh, Councillor Terry Whitehead is not going to be seeking another term on the Police Services Board. That has seemingly led to a scramble in his wake for that seat. The lineup behind him is growing already for those councillors who would like to take his spot on that board. Now, I have... I have no recollection. I can't recall hearing about this kind of jockeying for other committees. I'm sure it's happened. I'm sure there have been times when there have been committees and boards that councillors sit on that there is a lot of interest in. But I can't recall this kind of interest consistently. Every single time a new council is sworn in, police services board seems to be one of the target areas that a lot of people want to find their way into Which makes me wonder, has made me wonder, why is this such a sought-after seat? Why is this a board that is in such high demand? Well, figured the person we may want to ask about this is the guy who has decided that he is going to open his seat and allow someone else to jump in and take that. It's Councillor Terry Whitehead. Councillor, thanks for joining me today. It's great to be with you, Scott, and your listeners. And congratulations on your electoral win again. Thank you. Uh, let's get right at this, because there are, you've been on council long enough now, you've been around, you know the boards and the committees and all that. There are tons of boards and committees for councillors to sit on. Why is the Police Services Board apparently seen as such a plum gig? Well, I think um, there was always two uh, boards that seemed to be uh, the ones that a lot of councillors would seek out. Uh, at one time, we had the HECFI board, as you, you remember, and, yep. uh, and there would be a lot of councillors lining up for that particular opportunity as well. Well, that one also, though, sometimes I think there were some tickets and things that came with that. That one may have been a board that had some bonuses that came along with it. Absolutely. Without question. Um, so so that was the other side of board. Uh, the police board has always been seen as a, a prestigious board, a, a, port, uh, a board of importance in the sense that you are dealing with the police services, uh, safety uh, uh, and services and, you know, across this community, a larger community. And, uh, and all the pomp and ceremony that goes with it. So, uh, it, it's always been a tradition, certainly before I got elected, that, uh, counselors would, uh, um, especially veterans would seek out that particular opportunity to sit on the police services board. And, you know, even in the last term of council, there, I want to remind you that there was three, uh, names up for that, uh, the police service board. When you say three out of 15 that I put the names for, that's, you know, that's not a lot of people driving towards the, uh, to get on the police board, and uh, and again, this term of council, by all appearances, it looks like there's three councillors looking and vying for that position. Again, that's three out of fifteen. Uh, so that's I wouldn't say uh, it's being overly sought by many councillors. But that's three out of fifteen, Terry, who have come forward so far and expressed interest. And I don't recall, I can't think of another board out there right now that any councillors that I've heard of have already been putting laying the foundations to try and get on. Yeah, so there's uh, a lot of that is an internal process. So uh, when you're looking at all these standing committees, and uh, whether it's the NEC or the Conservation Authority, or Conservation Authority, Ham Conservation, whatever it is, you're not hearing a lot of that. But there's a lot of names, and there's going to be uh, uh, nominations and, and, uh, and selections uh, of councillors to go on those. And some of those committees are also uh, sought out. Uh, the Hamlet Conservation Authority. We've never had shortage of councillors on this and on that one as well. So, uh, or the NEC for the, for uh, for another example. So, 
are other boys that are sought out and uh, are competitively sought out by other counselors. Um, I'm certainly not aware at this point, and uh, my ear is, is pretty close to the ground. Uh, any other counselors putting their name forward? So it's about the same number as the last time. Uh, three counselors. Uh, uh, I think Andrew Gresham called that today with, uh, Anna, uh, I believe, Judy Partridge, Tom Jackson, and, and Chad Collins. And the last term was Chad Collins, myself, and, uh, and Lloyd Ferguson. You, very often it seems that when people get on there, they do stay though. It seems like a board people don't necessarily do once they want to stay when they get it. Why are you deciding now that it's time for you to step away from it? So, well, I've done it for 12 years and, uh, and a couple of things I look at, uh, what, what have I accomplished during the time, uh, I've been there or one, uh, I'm very proud of is that, uh, we've opened it up and it's a lot more transparent than it ever has. Now, sometimes, uh, there's some warts that come with that. But, uh, you know, for example, uh, ca- uh, media would not get access to uh, uh, board agendas until they arrived at the board meeting on that very day. Well, th- now the media gets the board uh, agendas uh, at the same time as the board members do. Uh, that's something I pushed for. I also pushed for pulling, pulling it out of the, uh, what I call the, uh, the inner sanctum or, or the police services, where it wasn't very accessible to the general public, out of the uh, police station downtown and bring it to City Hall. Uh, so that there's a greater access to what is taking place. And certainly uh, when you take a look at some of the board meetings, you get a good crowd. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about the Police Services Board, why it seems to be one of those boards that a lot of councillors want to get on. We're talking with Councillor Terry Whitehead. And before we continue, I do want to clarify force of habit when I introduced Councillor Whitehead was for me to say Councillor Whitehead of Ward 8. He's actually, of course, now of Ward 14. The fact that you didn't correct me, Councillor, was that just being polite, or did you forget what ward you're in too now because it's new? Well, you know, the funny thing is is that 90% of the residents in Ward 14 are the same residents I've had the privilege of representing for the last, what, 15 years now. So, uh, you know, I still see many of those residents as, as, as Ward 8 residents, so I, I still have to get used to the idea that it's now 14. We are talking about the Police Services Board and why there seems to be so much interest, or often there is anyway, from among councillors on getting on this. And just before the break, you mentioned the word transparency. Uh, yep. It's transparency, spotlight, whatever you want to call it. There certainly is that on this board a lot, and that can be great. And you've mentioned a few of the things that are good about it. It does bring extra scrutiny, though, and there's no getting around the fact that this board has had its share in the last little while of difficulties, and if you want to use the word scandals, that's fine. Is that is that something unusual? Is there a reason for that, or is that the fact that because so many people are looking at it that these things get noticed more? Well, I think traditionally, uh, and, and that was certainly my impression, and I think there was some... Um uh, the string of, uh, of truth to it is that, uh, it was all, to me, it was always seen as an old boys club. And, uh, and, uh, you know, you, you, you've made, you know, you get on the board, you, you, you rubber stamp things and, and you got the prestige of being on the police service board. Well, I wasn't going to be one of those counselors. Uh, so when I got, le- uh, uh, appointed on there, and that's why my council colleagues kept uh, reappointing me is because I challenged the status quo. Uh, there's a culture of spending, uh, you know, uh, con- Year in and year out, they would be well above the cost of inflation, well above all departments in regards to budgets they would bring in. Um, and so the culture had to shift, and they had to be challenged. And I don't think anyone, including the media, would suggest that I didn't ask a lot of very tough questions and hold them to account during the period of time that I was on the board. I can tell you that there's, you know, over time, 
there's been a cultural shift. There's an understanding and appreciation uh, that uh, uh, we, we we can do both. We can provide a great and excellent service at a value for the, the taxpayer, and we can't forget that value uh, component because there is a, uh, a limited capacity to 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 uh, spend money in this community. That that and that is true. It is a huge budget that you're dealing with there, but th- that doesn't really. Um, get to why some of the issues that have come up as far as difficulties and as far as things that have been, um, again, a scandal seems to me to be a, a, a harsh word, but I- incidents. And again, I wonder, is that is it something because of the power that people have on this board because it's a big board, or is it because of the extra eyeballs that are on it that these things get noticed? Well, I, I think, and I, I've always said, I don't like the governance of the, of the board currently. I think that... Uh, uh, Truly, to be accountable, the full board should be uh, just like the school board. It should be elected. Uh, they, they, the component of taxation uh, that they currently, uh, you know, the city taxes for those dollars. And I think that the elected officials on the police board uh, could be accountable for that spending. It brings more accountability to the people on the board. Don't forget, there's four appointees, provincial appointees. Yeah, sorry, three provincial. Three, appointees yeah, the plus city. the mayor, plus three councillors. Correct. Uh, I, I think I, I don't think that's a good governance model. There's no accountability. Has that ever been suggested? It's an interesting idea that you would vote for the Police Services Board. Have you, has that ever been brought up anywhere? Well, I think there's been governance reviews, and you know, one, I think I, I saw one that the mayor shouldn't, you know, one of the recommendations they were looking at at one point was mayors shouldn't sit on police boards. Uh, there's been enough controversy around mayors in other areas, uh, Peterborough being one that comes to mind, uh, where there's a, a conflict in regards to, you know, what how you're wearing. So I, I, I firmly believe uh, and always have that Part of the problem is the the current governance structure, uh, putting uh, 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 political friends on the board uh, is is not the approach that I think uh, nets the, the the greatest gain in regards to the interests of this community. And I re- I really firmly believe anyone on that police board should be held accountable for the decisions that they may make that they make. And the only way you can do that is uh, you know put them up for elections. Is there any other committee or board that city councillors would sit on that have as large a budget? I mean, other than the, com- the the committee as a whole, but I mean, as a specific one, is there any other one that has no, this big a budget? No. no. I mean, the library board doesn't even come close, and I think that would be the next largest. Uh, so with Okay, so now with you going, and Madeline Levy, her term is up, I believe, in January. She's one of the civilian um, appointees. Uh, Lloyd Ferguson so far has been non-committal about whether or not he's going to come in. Another one of your civilian uh, appointees is uh, coming up soon as well. That that could be a lot of new blood on this board. Would that be a good thing? Well, I think uh, when you take a look, like I said, I think there's been a significant culture change. For example, one of the biggest uh, uh, challenges I had when we created the action team and uh, and uh, they, they stripped uh, all divisions of a number of officers to build this action team. And that action team predominantly spent one time in one geographic area. And a lot of times they were issuing parking tickets. Uh, so to, from my perspective, I just wanted to see more dynamism. Uh, in, in, I love the action team, by the way, so let's not get that wrong. Uh, but I think that there needs to be more flexibility uh, where the demand was, where the crime is being committed, where the need is that that action team should be mobile to be able to facilitate those geographic areas at a given time. That approach was not in place. Uh, I've hammered away, and I can tell you now, and I'm proud to say this, that it's much more dynamic, and it is uh, being shifted to where the need is. So that so that would be a yes then. More more new blood would be a good thing. New well, ideas. I think that's my point. The culture's changed. There's, there's, uh, I think there's uh, uh, a foundation that we've created. 
uh, that is uh, going to be a lot easier for new people coming in. We're in the midst of uh, negotiations currently with the police association. I think this is a good time. Councillor Terry Whitehead, not of Ward 8, of Ward 14. I, I am pretty sure that over the next little while, I'll screw that up again a few times. You now have permission to correct me every time I do it if you're on the well, show. I, I'll certainly do that, but I, I, <laughs> I got to get used to the idea too. Councillor Terry Whitehead, thanks for the time today. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I trust, I hope... I'm banking on the fact that you know the story of Terry Lynn McClintock. You do, right? She is a woman who's been convicted for being involved in a an atrocious, uh, although I don't know that there's any that aren't atrocious, but um, sexual assault, abduction, murder of young Tory Stafford. You, you know, now you know the story, right? And you remember that few weeks ago, she was moved from her prison to an Aboriginal healing lodge, which spurred outrage around much of the country and justifiable outrage, I would suggest. I don't think there's too many people that heard that story and said, oh yeah, no, I think it's, I think she's done enough time. What's she done? Five years, six years, seven, whatever it is. I think that's more than enough time for this. No one said that. Well, today, federal public safety minister, Ralph Goodale has ordered Canada's prison system to tighten up its transfer policies in the wake of that particular case and that outrage. That doesn't determine or that doesn't guarantee, however, whether McClintock is going to be going back to prison. That that still remains a little bit up in the air. We don't really know. We don't even know, quite frankly, if she may have already been. We don't know. They're not telling us that right now. Well, let me bring in someone who knows this case well. She's covered it for a long, long time. Uh, She is the host of On Point, which follows this very show right here on 900 CHML every night. But you know that because I've told you that at the end of every single show since she started on here. I tell you at the end of my two hours every night, stick around now because Alex Pearson is up next. Well, she's up early today. Alex Pearson joins Mm -hmm. you now. How are you tonight? I am. I'm doused with the flu. Are you really? Totally on it. Well, that's what happens when you have a five-year-old. You just... You give birth to a petri dish. This is true. I'm I'm past that era, and I, I'm no longer kids in nursery school and all the rest. <laughs> so um, you don't actually you're right. Bring home the uh, sharing is caring, as they all say. well something oh, like yeah. that. <laughs> so yeah. shall we? You, you've yeah. been around this story for a long time. You know this as well as anyone. Shall we leap to the immediate conclusion that the fact that Ralph Goodale has said this, even though they're playing coy as far as what's going to happen with Terry Lynn McClintock, that she, in fact, will be shuttled back to penitentiary ASAP and the world will return to a happy place? <laughs> yeah, his um, his privacy concerns are, are a bit, um, you know, funny, I should say, in this case. But yeah, you get the distinct impression that, you know, when he was asked, does Terry Lynn McClintock fall under this new policy? He was quick to say yes. So I think that's code for, yes, she'll be going back. And so they either must have, Scott, gotten so much blowback um, from the Canadian public on this case, or we're in an election year. But take a guess of which of those two, or maybe both are correct. Yeah, I was going to say both. And I don't, uh, before I get to that part, his idea or his concerns about privacy, I'm I'm not sure that I am following the idea that convicted murderers or those convicted of crimes like this should be given these kind of concerns about privacy. I think we should know exactly where she is. Well, we should, but the the, the frustration in corrections and in our criminal system, it's amazing how much 
protection and privacy is put around these people. You would think that given you know, what she and others have done, that that would be taken away. But no, no, no. In fact, it's way more protective around these people uh, once they go in. And so never mind a guy like Mr. Safford and what he goes through. Terry Lynn McClintock would be afforded a lot more privacy um, and rights than, let's say, the family of Tory Stafford. So none of that surprises me. In fact, it's, it's very much backwards in this country. Um, but the bottom line is they had to make changes. They were getting real blowback, Scott, from indigenous groups uh, who felt very, very uh, manipulated by this because they were not in on the decision process of this healing lodge. And so they not only heard from First Nations group, they must have heard from an awful lot of Canadians on this issue and, and knew that if they didn't get this thing dealt with, that it would just follow them into the next election. But they're very vague on the details. And as I understand... Um, and I'll be addressing this in the show a little bit later, of what the actual change is for. It, it seems that it's only dealing with female offenders. Yeah, yeah. Only in these particular lodges. So, uh, you know, we've got to wait and hear the details of it. I just hope it's not one of these little, like, tweaks and, and you know, dot the I and cross the T. I hope they have real tangible change um, that leads to, to sensible corrections in this country. And one of the areas that I do know that they're making changes is that they will add the elders back into the decision process because six years ago, elders were cut from deciding and sitting on the boards of who could come into these facilities and who could not. But the, 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 the healing lodges are set up specifically to deal with Indigenous groups, to rehabilitate them, to deal with their culture, their traditions, and to get them ready to go back out into society. Terry Lynn McClintock is not native. She never was. It was never brought up, certainly, in her in her cases. And so how she got into that facility became a real bone of contention. And a lot of um, uh, First Nations uh, groups that I had spoken with felt very much angered by the fact that they didn't want this system to be manipulated to get mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. or undermined and, and, and mocked. And so I think it's important that they've cu- closed that loophole to put the elders back on the, the boards when deciding these cases, because... They had said, had we been on that board, we probably would never have said yes to her. Well, let's go back. I'm just going to read from uh, what this actual change is that Ralph Goodale said today. Under the new policy, Goodale announced transfers will have to be authorized by Correctional Service Canada's Deputy Commissioner for Women, who will be required to ensure Indigenous communities are engaged in transfer recommendations. This, to me, seems like a, you know, again, when you said, does this mean Terry Lynn McClintock? Does she qualify? This is the most oddly specific change to a policy. Not only is it only for women, but you must engage this person and this person. It has to be by the Deputy Commission for Women. Uh, There's no broad change to making sure that dangerous people are not given an easier time. This is a really specific thing. Yeah, it seems to be specific, but they are making other changes in corrections, um, namely to um, isolation, you know, incar- in incarceration. They're, they're changing that. Now, I don't know if they're going to have more announcements in that piece of legislation that they're pushing through. It seems that they're making minor changes to this one so that they never get like a Terry Lynn McClintock, you know, headline again. But don't forget. You've got Elizabeth Wetlaufer, who is yes, also, the nurse. You know, sitting in a, a you know an arts and crafts center in Montreal. Um, she'll never be rehabilitated. So how she got into that facility is beyond anybody. Um, again, so you have all these cases coming up that there was no question that they had to fix it. And I don't care which government does it. I just want it fixed so that people like uh, you know Mr. Stafford don't have to go to Parliament Hill and hold a rally. But they don't have to hear in the newspaper that their daughter's killer is living in, 
in, in a healing lodge. So it's a first step forward. I, I think we all have to wait for details to see, in fact, if it goes far enough. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, we're chatting about the Terry Lynn McClintic. It really is the Terry Lynn McClintic story. I mean, the, the federal government is positioning this as a change for women who maybe shouldn't be going to Aboriginal healing lodges. It's it's pretty difficult to separate that from this particular story. And Alex, what I really find interesting about this is that it was only two weeks ago, maybe, that our prime minister was standing up calling anyone who would argue that this is not right simply saying they were ambulance chasers and this is good corrections and we trust our corrections people. And maybe it's three weeks. I don't know, maybe a month. It seems like it's a couple of weeks. Um, it seems to me very surprising that being the case, that this adjustment has happened this quickly, that close to the wake of those comments. Yeah. Well, that was a complete communications fail. They blundered their way through that. They could have owned this issue and made the changes and, kept the opposition at bay, but instead, for whatever reason, they tried to fight this. Like, they were doing, you know, something so favorable to, to everybody by making sure that the justice systems, you know, not touched in any way. When it, it was so clear to everybody, Scott, that there are big problems, and it wasn't just Terry and Len McClintic, that, because we did hear about Wet Lawfer, and then Paul Bernardo, his parole came up, and so we had this really good national discussion on victims of violent crime and what they go through and how they're kind of left to to deal on their own with these terrible, terrible circumstances that they don't ask for themselves. And so at the very least, can you not give them a phone call or a heads up when their, you know, their loved one's killer is moved? And so we've had this conversation now for a few weeks, and thankfully they've come around to making these changes. But, but that's the shock. Little, Alex, well, that's, that's I, the, it, only because the politi- politicians and leaders of political parties don't want to have to backtrack and basically admit two weeks later that what they said was not right. Right, but again, it's going to depend on what the detail is in these particular changes, because is it only dealing with female um, clients or uh, female offenders? <laughs> that's why what they'll call them. Yeah, that's what they will call them. I mean, why not male offenders? Um, there are all sorts of people in this country that do offensive crimes, and where are they staying? So are, are they putting in provisions for that? But I want to see the details of what they have uh, put in place so that we actually know that this means action, because what we're starting to see more and more is this turn to rehabilitation mm. instead of actual corrections. And so, you know, this piece of legislation moving through right now on on, you know, giving those who are in maximum security in isolation more free time, and more time to converse with people and those kinds of changes, what they're doing is clearly going to a more rehabilitation uh, way of dealing with corrections than the actual justice and, and, you know, punishment, which I think Canadians have a problem with because mm-hmm. there are just some people that I don't care if they sit in a cell and rot, frankly. I don't care if Paul Bernardo sits in a cell and rots. I don't care if Terry Lynn McClintic rots in a cell or Elizabeth Wetlaufer. There are some people in this country that cannot and will not and should never be rehabilitated. And so for justice to actually be done, you actually have to see it to be done. Yeah, and, and I think done in these cases. I think most people in this country are reasonable people, and I think most people realize that for most prisoners, most, not all, uh, there ha- they will eventually be released, and so there has to be some kind of rehabilitation because we want them to come out of prison ready to be part of society again, not just to reoffend. 
However, it does seem that we do have a very hard time in our society finding the right balance between, as you describe it, the justice part of this, the punitive part of this, the deterrent part of this, and the really friendly, warm, hug-a-tree rehabilitation side of this. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look at the Muzzo case that we're talking about today. Again, you've got this case where someone killed a family of four, you know, three very young babies. That's the drunk driver um, the, the yes. in the uh, Toronto area. You know, and, and he was sentenced to 10 years. That's not nearly enough, but that's what you do for, for you know, for uh, crimes when you're dealing with, you know, cars killing people or drunk drivers. We're just not serious about that kind of um, sentencing in this country. And so what you see is all these conversations that are happening um, involving very serious, serious crimes, but no real jail sentence where people start to say, why are we hearing about all of these cases? They're all the same. Terrible tragedies, and the person on the other end isn't really um, serving any time for that. How is that fair? Um, so I'd like to think that maybe we're going to have more conversations about this and, and start changing the sentencing on these things. But again, when you're dealing with the types of crimes that Terry Lynn McClintock did, or Elizabeth Wetlocker or Paul Bernardo. These people, you know, we don't need to debate them. Mm-hmm. They should be where they be and leave them there. It's at very least they can do is 25 years. That's you, not asking much. You had, we only have a minute or so left here. You had, I believe you had Tory Stafford's dad on your show not that long mm-hmm. ago. He mm-hmm. went and talked to the prime minister. Do you think that that actually has any impact or, or is that a show thing? I don't think the prime minister had any choice but to meet with Mr. Stafford. And I get the sense that he is, you know, one thing you can't say about Justin Trudeau is that he's not caring. He does really empathize and care for people. So I'm sure he was moved by it. But again, it shouldn't have had to get to that level where he was given, I think he had about seven minutes with the prime minister. And the conversation really was just father to father. They didn't talk really about what's going to happen. What can I do? How can I change this? Um, But in the end of the day, the, the bottom line is the government could have and should have moved much faster and said, you know what, we're going to deal with this. This is not right. There's obviously been some kind of mistake or injustice here, and we're proactively going to make sure that we review it, make sure that these things are changed. And they didn't. So they've done it now. Let's wait for the details. But again, a guy like Rodney Stafford um, should not have had to go through all the jumps and hoops of everything uh, to get this change made. And again, we don't know if she's moved. We will only know if she's moved once Mr. Stafford gets that phone call um, and is told, and then maybe the media will learn about it. That is Alex Pearson, a sickly Alex Pearson today. Uh, tune in, stick around here, 8 o'clock after I'm done. It will be Alex Pearson in her own personal vomitorium on 900 CHML. <laughs> but she will be working. Alex, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Have a great night. Thanks, Alex. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This, to me, was one of the stunning pieces of news that I've heard in a long, long time, and it happened today. Bryce Harper, who is an outfielder with the Washington Nationals, who is a free agent, was offered $300 million American to sign a 10-year contract with the Washington Nationals, and he said, yeah, no thanks. I'm holding out for more. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH joins us now. Sir, how are you tonight? Not bad, sir. Just off the desk and uh, ready to talk some sports. If you were offered a contract for $300 million U.S. to do anything, would you say yes or would you say, I think I'll wait for more? Well, come on, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a, not a 
what, 24, 26 year old baseball player with all kinds of potential. <laughs> My days are done. <laughs> I, I I understand that he's looking at this as there is probably more money out there, and I believe there probably is more money out there. What stuns me about this, Bubba, is I'm not sure that you can argue that Bryce Harper is certainly not the top position player in baseball, and I don't know if he's one of the top five position players in baseball. He's very good, but if if he is worth, let's say he ends up getting $33 million a year, what are some of the other guys? What's Mike Trout worth? What are some of the other guys in this game worth? Well, I think the way it's set up or the way, I mean, let's, let's be honest here. Bryce Harper had a down year this year, mm-hmm. um, statistically one of his worst years. Now, he was also on a team that was not very good. But I believe that if you look at Bryce Harper and you, you draw the comparison to the guy that's arguably thought of as the greatest in the game right now and Mike Trout, that those two are basically the one and two, uh, one being in the American League and one being in the National League um, for you know the better part of their careers at this point. He's put up the kind of numbers that you know deservedly would say that you know three hundred million dollars over ten years is is a bargain, quite honestly, for the Washington Nationals. So <laughs> you realize when you say that there are people listening who just drop their jaw on the table, going, "Wait, you said three hundred million is a bargain?" But, but it, I mean, relative. But put it, make it relative. This is pro sports. We're not talking about. We're not talking about working at the, you know that CHML or CHCH, right? So, so you've got to look at it in its proper you know perspective, and the fact that it's a ten-year commitment to, uh, you know, that means you're also locked in. To me, that is a very team-friendly contract, and certainly not worth market value for him for that particular player. For three hundred million dollars, Bubba, I would be the guy at the end of the parade cleaning up after the elephants, and I do it with my bare hands. And so would I. But but we're not major league baseball players uh, that, that are you know that haven't even reached the peak the peak of uh, of their potential careers. And here's the funny part about this, and and uh, it's it's funny in an ironic kind of way. I am sure that when Bryce Harper was looking at that $300 million offer, because we're hearing the, the entirety of $300 million, and it's over 10 years, so $30 million a year, he's looking not at the $300 million, but he's looking at, okay, what are the annual average salaries of the best players in baseball? And when you look at that, that would make him tied for the third best and you say, well, I, he probably figures I'm in my prime, I'm coming into my prime, I'm going to be better than them, so I deserve more than them. The, the part I was getting to, the irony is when you look at the top 10 players in baseball this year, Clayton Kershaw of the Dodgers, pitcher, arguably the best pitcher in the game. He's the most, most valued, he's the highest paid player. Zach Greinke is second. He makes $32 million. I wouldn't put Zach Greinke in your list of top 10 pitchers right now. Uh, David Price, number three, he had a good year, and then he rebounded in the playoffs and, and had a decent playoff when it was all over. Miguel Cabrera is fourth. He was injured for all but about 10 games this year. Verlander, Justin Verlander for Houston was good, maybe almost great this year. He was fourth, uh, or tied for fifth, pardon me. Just Jason Hayward with the Cubs. Nowhere near an elite player even at this point anymore. Albert Pujols, who was once upon a time the best player in the game. Those days are long, long gone. Felix Hernandez, who missed most of the year with injury. John Lester, who is pretty good, maybe very good, but not 
one of your top 10 pitchers, and CC Sabathia, who's now about 106 and 400 pounds, and is he signed this year or today for $8 million for next year, but he got $25 million last year. You're one of these players. You're a guy like Bryce Harper. You're looking going, I'm worth way more than all those guys. Well, I think you're missing the most important thing here, that every single one of those guys that you've named are in their 30s. And many of them in their on the descent mid, in their mid to upper thirties. Bryce Harper's twenty six years old, and remember, with the with due respect to his off season, his season that was off statistically. Now there were some parts of his game that you know statistically stand right up there with you know some of the greats of the game, but this time last year we were talking about him being the first. $400 million man. Could still happen. It, it probably won't, but he'll get close. He'll get, he'll get 350 somewhere. You know, or, or that somehow his contract works out to being $40 million a year. You have teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox. Now, the Red Sox have done a great job with their farm system. There is no way that they're, they're looking for anyone to play in their outfield based on the young and youth players that they have there. But you also have someone like the New York Yankees. You also have the likes of the LA Dodgers, Dodgers. Angels. You know, you know Angels. The Rangers. Are, you know, the, the Angels, who knows what they're trying to do. I mean, they're, they, they've been playing second shadow to the Dodgers for a long time, and they're, you know, they, wanna, they want a quick rebuild in, in Los Angeles because they're playing second sister to the Dodgers There's right now. lots. There's, there are teams out there. The Cardinals are being talked about. There, he will probably end up getting... Three hundred and fifty million, and you and I will be sitting here saying, "What is going on in the world?" But that is that is the world. You know what he could buy for three hundred and fifty million if he gets it, <laughs> which is really about four hundred and fifty million Canadian. You know what he could buy? Three stadiums proposed for Halifax and three CFL teams proposed for <laughs> Halifax. He could oh, he could build three of them side by side and own them all by himself. Wouldn't that be great? He could put one in St. John's, he could put one in St. John's, and he could put one in Dartmouth. <laughs> just, or for, to represent Halifax. I mean, it'd be incredible. The <laughs> entire East Coast, the Atlantic Division of the CFL. Will this work? Now, this is a league that in out West, this league remains very strong. Calgary is strong, and I don't mean team-wise, I mean fan-base-wise. Calgary's strong, Edmonton's strong, Saskatchewan is strong, Regina's strong, Winnipeg is doing pretty well. Easterly of that, Toronto, we know the problems they're having with attendance in Toronto. Montreal is way down this year. Hamilton at times this year seems to have struggled. There have been games when there haven't been a lot of people there. Um, what Ottawa... Ottawa's doing all right, but I wonder, Ottawa's been a good, really good team ever since they got back into the league. If they ever falter a little bit, what would happen to the fans there? Will Halifax, do you think, support long-term a CFL team? You know, and it'll be funny because there's not a lot of entertainment options sports-wise in, that, in those communities. Um, the Leafs do have their new uh, ECHL team out there in St. John's. Uh, anything short of that, just not a lot going on. This will be an event-driven um, ticket, you know, nine games a year, you know, uh, who knows if playoffs. And they will need to get, I, in my opinion, and I'm just, you know, throwing these out, I would think that they would need to get at least a minimum of a three-year commitment from season ticket holders. That puts a lot of, and, and you know, again, tickets, I would believe, would be probably middle to high range in the CFL. You're talking about an area with a high unemployment rate. Population of 400,000. So exactly. probably you're going to need about one out of every 18 people in that city at Absolutely. every game. Absolutely. Again, and that's, and that's an important part. 
So somehow, some way, Scott, uh, big business is going to have to step up big time in that area. And that's the question. Now, what they have done today with today's press conference that, uh, you know, maritime uh, group that are put have, you know, bounded together to try and get this going, uh, they put that season tickets out there, you know, $50 to, you know, have a priority at having an opportunity at buying season tickets. Uh, I, I would think that it's in the hands of the people right now and I, big business out there to show that they want a team out there. That uh, $50 for a down payment on a season ticket. I had this problem. I've, I thought this was ridiculous when we were doing season tickets for NHL bids here in Hamilton. We were trying to get it and people were putting, I think it was 50 bucks at one of the times that you had to put down for a season ticket. To me, that says nothing. Bubba, that says nothing. The way you determine if there is truly a an interest and a commitment to season tickets for a team is you say it is $500 per season ticket as a down payment you have to put down. And if we, in fact, get a team, you that is non-refundable. You must buy the season ticket then. Because putting 50 bucks that is a refundable bit of money, that means nothing. That that says absolutely to me nothing to anybody about whether there's actual interest. Uh, you know, it's hard to argue with that, Scott. Because I mean, uh, if I'm Randy Ambrosi here, and I know this was sort of the case of what happened in Ottawa, and they've become very, very fortunate, quite honestly, to to land the ownership group that they have there, that have put you know you know fixed got you know joined together with the city to fix you know, Lansdowne Park and now TD Stadium, um, and build the kind of environment that, you know, I think could be long-lasting for Ottawa, even in days when they're not a winning franchise, because since they've been there, they've been a team that's made the playoffs. Um, I think there's a good vibe for CFL football in Ottawa once again. But they've got to find a way to build that interest in the East Coast. And, you know, as I, I, I've never been, I've been to Western Canada, I've, been, I've never been to the Eastern Canada, so I speak a little bit of uh, ignorance here. But I would have to believe that you have to find a way to get all PEI, you got to get everyone involved on this to work. And, you know, as people travel from miles and miles away in the province of Saskatchewan to go see Rough Rider games, I think you have to build that same model for that if this team happens in the maritime. And I think and, and it could work. I'm not being a complete skeptic on this. I think it could work because of the reason you said your entertainment options are not the same as you have in southern Ontario with Toronto or Buffalo or everyone right there. So you may make this work. But I go back to this idea that you have to put down a $50 refundable down payment for a season ticket. Now you tell me something. I I'll use me as the example. I hear that season tickets are now available and I put down two refundable $50 down payments and I go home and I tell my wife, oh, I put down a hundred bucks. There's no problem. Now I go home and I tell my wife, I just put down a thousand dollars on season tickets with a guarantee that I must do this for three years if we get a team and I can't get that money back there's a lot of guys and and women too. It'll go the other way as well. Who will suddenly go? Uh, wait a second. I'm not sure I'm ready to make that kind of commitment yet. And but that's the commitment you have to have before you put a shovel in the ground to build a stadium. Oh, and you're right. And that's going to show the Canadian Football League and even just people in that area if if there's real interest there to to make this team and make this franchise work. Uh, I, I find it hard to believe that or find any way to, to to disagree with you, Scott, on that one because. Um, 
that kind of, you know, $50 to $500 is a tremendous difference. And again, I think that would force big business in the East Coast to step up and, you know, and suck up some of those tickets for, to make that type of commitment. Wow, man, you, if you were to put the, and it doesn't have to be 500 let's say 300 something that is a significant amount. And if you sure. then got 15,000 people, let's say, who were willing to put that down knowing they were locked in, man, if you're the owners, if you're the people who are trying to convince the city or the province to give some public money, what better way to say, look at the commitment we've got here. This will work. Well, absolutely. To me, that would be the slam dunk, very, very much like the Vegas Golden Knights did. You know, they 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 put a, they opened up their pocketbooks and proved to the, the National Hockey League that you know what a team is going to be here. And I like the way what they did in that in circumstances. They said big business were not allowed to make those bids. So those were the people speaking that sucked up all those season tickets. Uh, so they've got a good thing going there. But you're right. I mean. $500, and I think $500 is a good number, and you're right. 15,000 people committed at 500 go, start digging now. But will they even, like, honestly, okay, and I could be way off base here by saying this, but I will. I don't know if they're even going to get 15000 at $50. Well, if they can't do that, it's over. Like there's the, the CFL has this dream, and they're going to want to do everything possible. See, this is what I think. I think that the CFL w- intentionally wants to keep the price down because they want to get the numbers up that will allow them to say, look at the interest. And I completely understand that. I completely get that. But my, my question will be, when it comes time then, and they set the ticket price at an average price of, let's say, $50. So you've put down a down payment for one game, but now you've got nine plus a preseason game plus maybe some playoffs. How many of those people are going to then say, yeah, I'm in, and how many of them are going to say, mm, I gave it some thought, maybe not so much. You, I think it's got to be, and I said this when we were trying to get a hockey team here, putting down a $50 deposit or a $100 deposit on NHL season tickets was lunacy. It meant nothing here in Hamilton because those season tickets were going to be even back then five grand for the year. What is a hundred? And that's each. What does a hundred dollars mean? It means nothing. All it is is a bunch of people who had a hundred bucks who knew they could get it back, saying, "Put me down because I want to get a seat." But then they would never have fallen through. A lot of them. Well, it didn't. It didn't work. Right? It didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work. This so, this will for, and, for for many reasons. But that you know. But you're right. This the one beauty of this. The one and why I do hope, and we got to go. Why I do hope this really works is for the CFL. The number ten of number of teams is the perfect number for the CFL because they play eighteen games. It means one home and one away. Every single team in the league that would that aligns perfectly. Suddenly, everything in the CFL schedule works. There's balance. You're no longer having some teams having a more difficult schedule than others. It is the perfect thing. If they could get Halifax in, it is beautiful for this league. Let me, but here's my one question here. And I know there's a, there's a fascination and, you know, for, you know, for ages, we've been hearing about the, the Halifax scooters and that, you know, that's a name that's very popular out there. Would the league be set better suited to have a second team in, in Quebec? How about a second one in Saskatchewan? I don't think that works. <laughs> no, you it know, doesn't and, work. You know but... Maybe it does work. Maybe you're right. No, it wouldn't it's work. So but, but around so Laval? But, but, but yeah, Quebec City. 
Yeah, well, with with see, I don't know if they Laval's football team is the university is so wildly successful. I don't know if that's transferable. There's certainly a football culture, but Montreal right now the Alouettes are losing, and there's nobody at those games. Laval wins all the time, and that's why people are going. I don't know if it's just the Alouettes. Though Scott, I'm okay with that. If you don't win and your product is poor, the people will not show up. And I and Montreal have proven that you know in that decade of of dominance for you know during the Calvillo year they couldn't keep they couldn't stop selling tickets. That's true. I do. Uh, we got to go. I do hope though if Halifax does get a team, I know they've talked about the schooners, the all kinds of different things they've come up with for the names already today. I want them to be called the machine. They already did that. The Montreal machine. No, but this works way better because it's the Halifax machine. It works. It's the Halifax machine. See, it's it, it's perfect. Ooh. What else are you going to come Ooh. up with? The schooners. The schooners. You know what they're going to do if they become the schooners? They're going to bring back those New York Islanders Captain Highliner jerseys and make them wear that. I like the Admirals. I like the the Atlantic Admirals. I'm, I'm okay the with Atlantic that. Atlantic Admirals. Hmm. I'll have to give this one some, uh, the line man of Green Gables. <laughs> what about the Storm? The Storm? Yeah, the um, the how about the the Atlant the maritime Titanic almost got here. Are we getting too obscure? Maybe we are way out there. The come from here or come from where? What was the name of that? What's the name of that? Come from, come from. What's the name of that play? I can't think of it now. For nine eleven, come from beyond, come from away. It's not happening. <laughs> It'll probably be the schooners. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. You can hear him tonight. On CHCH, doing the new, doing the weather, doing the sports, maybe doing traffic, maybe doing some news too. Who knows? He does everything now. Appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.